0: Tonight on Arena, actor Siobhan Cullen, director John Hayes on Obituary, the new black comedy TV series and a retrospective exhibition on the work of Marina Abramovich. one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. A brand new series starts tomorrow night on RTE 1. It's a comedy drama about a small town obituarist called Elvira Clancy, a rookie obituarist in a local newspaper. But when jobs are cut because of declining sales, her editor takes her off the payroll and will only pay per obituary. As Elvira is supporting herself and her widowed father on the money, she starts to take matters into her own hands when people aren't dying fast enough. I'm joined on the line by Siobhan Cullen, who plays Elvira, and director John Hayes is, is with me in studio uh, here. And Siobhan, even as I read that out, I watched the first episode today, the premise here, it's just so delightful. If you're an obituaryist, you need people to die if they're not dying you have to help them along the way it's a it's a wonderful premise
1: it is it's like i keep saying it's the best elevator pitch for a show i've ever heard <laughs> just in one line you're like oh that is amazing of course perfect concept
0: <laughs> uh, and elvira herself again even the names i don't know um, ray who wrote it uh, ray lawler who wrote it all of the names here are brilliant uh, elvira clancy just that name itself conjures up all sorts of images for me did you what did you what was your reaction when you read the script beyond the elevator pitch
1: i think my first impression was just i haven't there's nothing i can really compare this to like tonally it's just so unique um there's there's nothing else really like it so it kind of captured me immediately like it's a really fine balance between the the, the darkness of the show, but also the comedy. Um so yeah, it was really just uh, I suppose just it's 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 total it just stood out from every other script that I had that I'd been reading. Yeah,
0: well, let's listen to a little bit of the script. This is a, quite early on. This is in voiceover, uh, you, Siobhan, as Elvira, uh, reflecting on the situation in the town, the village of... Well, it's a town. There needs to be a town. There needs to be lots of inhabitants in it because there are lots <laughs> of obituaries need to be written. Um, here she is reflecting on the state of play in Kilraven.
1: Population 5,000 and falling... Kilraven is like a fun fair in winter. It's people convinced that if the sun only shone, if that factory reopened, if the foreigners left, their lives would be good again. On the surface, a bog standard backwater. But as my dad likes to say, under that veneer of nothingness, there's a ton of weird shit going
2: on
0: that is uh, from the opening scenes. one of the opening scenes of uh, obituary new comedy starting on RT1 television tomorrow evening Siobhan Cullen playing the part of uh, Elvira I keep going to say Elvira Madigan <laughs> because of the because of the old film and the, the Mozart <laughs> piano concert. Elvira Clancy playing the character of Elvira Clancy there and with me in studio here John Hayes uh, and I was saying to you beforehand John I'd, and I was interested to hear what, you, what Siobhan had, would have to say about that reading of it as an actor I heard so many actors at the time this script was doing the round saying, it's an amazing script. It's quite extraordinary. You must have had the same reaction yourself when you read it.
3: Absolutely. Um, I mean, you read a lot of scripts, but this, as Javon just said, it just jumped out. I mean, the the premise, I read a kind of a small document that kind of captured the premise and then the script arrived and you're just willing the script to be good because the premise was so good. Um, and it just jumped off the page. Um, again, it was just across the six episodes, he just had such a clear idea of the story he wanted, he wanted to tell. Um, and, yeah, a dialogue that had just, yeah, just jumped off the page. It was just like, it was like who is this guy? I'd yeah. not heard of him before. And he just had such a clear voice. Um, yeah, and then just, obviously, when you start to kind of chat to the actors and people had heard about it, as I was mm. saying to you before the show, one actor who kind of had come in, she's in episodes two and three, she'd heard this being pitched in Galway Filmfly, I think, three years before and she was like this has to be made <laughs> so when she heard it was being made she was just yeah, I'll do anything just to be in it you know what I mean so it was just great it was really it was a, it was a real pleasure
0: uh, Mind you uh, Siobhan because of uh, Elvira's <laughs> great need for people to write obituaries about there'll be a lot of people cast <laughs> in this show <laughs> as it goes on uh, and they might disappear quite quickly as well <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's actually, it was really amazing though because we, we had such a brilliant cast. Um, so at times it's nearly like a who's who of Irish actors. It was mm. so amazing to have such incredible actors come in and then, I mean, very satisfying in a way to kill them off in such <laughs> delicious and unusual ways.
0: <laughs> well, that sounds as if then you, you share uh, Elvira's fascination with <laughs> all things death and funereal.
1: Well, I suppose it's, it's rare for... Uh, an actress of my age to get to play a murderer they're quite those parts are few and far between, and often they are the most interesting parts so um yeah i did I did take a bit of joy from
4: that
0: <laughs> hey, rare, rare you say to, to get to play a murderer, but also rare to get to play a murder to get to play a murderer who has to make us laugh as well, so you, you've a very fine line to tread between believability. Um, the awfulness yeah. of what she's doing. We need to be sympathetic to her, and you have to make us laugh. Quite a task, a set of tasks. Yeah,
1: it is. Myself and and John, I'm sure will tell you. Uh, we spoke a lot about this sort of five percent off reality of our world of Kill Raven That it's, um, you know, it's not it's not surrealism, but there's just five mm. percent off sort of naturalism and realism so in that five percent that's kind of where the sort of oddness and the sort of um you know suspension of disbelief happens and um, and that's where sometimes a lot of the comedy lies but for the most part yeah she's she is just a, a you know yeah. a, a normal average girl living in this town on the west of Ireland
0: yeah and, and the, the choice of location is extraordinary here I don't know if the, if the people of love- how the people of Ballyshannon will feel about it, except that it could become one of these great kind of holiday trails. Yeah. Follow follow (laughs) Elvira Clancy of where she went to murder XYZ and ABC.
3: It was interesting. (laughs) I mean, one of the the real fun parts early on was just trying to find the town of, this fictional town of Kilraven. Um, and as Siobhan kind of said, we're really it. It needed to feel like a real place, you know what I mean? Um, and Ray, as you heard in that little clip, describes it like as a kind of a fun fair and fun fair in winter. Um, so and it, like you kind of touched upon, it needed to be big enough, yeah, that it would have a newspaper and that Elvira ultimately could start bumping people off, and it wouldn't turn too many heads, you know, not to begin with, anyway. Mm. Um, so we kind of went up and down the coast, and and Ballyshannon is just this. It's a beautiful place. Um, but is kind of untouched, like it has yeah. shops and and like department stores that, yeah, are kind of just unique to this place. Like they're not a part of a chain, yeah. Um, which in which is as we all know is kind of becoming rarer and rarer. And then Bundoran, which is right beside Ballyshannon, kind of has that. Well, it, in the height of summer, it's full on. But in the mm. wintertime, it's got that faded funfair yeah. feel. So the composite of those two places became our town of Kilraven, and the people were great. <laughs> they were like, lots of them ended up in the show. Um, yeah, because
0: yeah. the other thing about Bally Shannon, which I think is a, a kind of important here, it is that that, that little stretch of coast along there. Mm. You have Donegal, you have Leitrim and you have Sligo, like in a line along each other. So there's a kind of a, there's an, a kind of surreality about the place anyway.
3: Well, that's, I mean, I, and I'm sure Siobhan would kind of echo this, like one of the things that kind of jumped off the page for me with Ray's writing was it just, it had this, kind of West of Ireland kind of anarchy to it. There was a kind of, a, it was play, you've, we all know the West and I related yeah. to it. I've been there many times, but it just captured the kind of slight lawlessness of places, you know what I mean? Um, and I loved that. It kind of felt a little bit like, I've not seen it on TV before, maybe yeah. it touched upon in books um, and some really great writers, but I just thought Ray captured that brilliantly. Um, and he's from, he's from Castle Bar. Like he's, he knows he this knows, world knows really the, well.
0: Uh, although, Siobhan, you did have to shoot in a lovely part of the world that it is, and I do visit there regularly and I love it a lot. But you were there in January and February, <laughs> not for the faint-hearted. Please tell me you don't have to go for a swim at any point along the way. I've only seen episode one.
1: Well, <laughs> no, luckily we didn't. But you know what? I mean, OK, maybe John might have... It. <laughs> For, our, for the early parts of the shoot, mm. so they would have been, yeah, John's episodes, and a lot of it was outdoors. We, yeah, we were quite unlucky. We would have a lovely mix of snow, hail, <laughs> and rain, all within the same day. And I was going to say, that was only the first shooting. hour of the shoot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and often shooting in quite, like, treacherous places mm. on the side of cliffs, and but, Overall, I think you know it. It definitely could have been worse, considering yeah. we were in Donegal in winter. But yeah. um, but, you know, yeah, the, no, the, we had an amazing crew who just who just got on with this and made it work.
0: I have to say, you, you, Siobhan mentioned it earlier on, uh, John, and you said this to me before we came to her as well. Like some of the actors that are there: Michael Smiley, Lola Ruddy, David Ganley, Barry McGovern, Danielle Galligan, Marion O'Dwyer. I mean. As you said, the the cream of Irish acting, and that's only a few of them. There are there are lots of others in there as well. Charlie Bonner, I think, appears at one point as well. Be careful up that ladder, Charlie, is all I'm saying about that.
3: <laughs> uh, again, it was like the like I keep going back to it, just the quality of Ray's riding. Um, it really was. Um, as I said, people were just they just wanted to be a part of it. And like Siobhan mm. said, it was a really lovely group. Um we had a lot to do, and not you not a huge amount of time, but it was just a really lovely group of people. Um, yeah, it was great fun.
0: Let's listen to another clip, which uh, this gives us a sense of the dynamic within the the newspaper office. David Ganley plays the uh, plays the editor in the in the newspaper. Uh, Huey Burns, isn't that that's yeah, Huey yeah. Burns is his name, and here he is kind of explaining how how obituaries work and why he has very little money to to pass on to Pura Alveira.
3: When you're done, file it.
1: And then what?
0: And then you wait for someone to die.
1: And when might that be?
0: Clancy, never say that out loud. Your job
3: is to write obituaries, to take that talent you claimed you had, to make the deceased alive, to give voice to the voiceless. Not to sit there praying that some pensioner pops his clogs. What are you looking at? Nothing. Well, then get back to work. It won't write itself.
0: And the wonderful music there. Also, that slightly off-kilter feel that that we have. That's David Ganley as the editor and Siobhan Cullen as Elvira in a scene from uh, Obituary there. And we should explain, obviously we don't have the visuals here, when he says to her, "What are you looking at?" Up at the side appears the obituary yeah. <laughs> of of his possible obituary. Now that doesn't come to pass, but the, let's let's not go any further because we don't want to know. Everybody is in peril, really, in 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 this particular case. And um, you're you're coming off the back of the dry, and I think season two has just finished on that one. Uh, Siobhan, has it.
1: Yeah, we wrapped up on the second season um, about maybe six weeks ago now. Um, so, Yeah, it was really lovely to return to that show. Um, we had a great time on it, yeah.
0: And I think you've also been filming um, the Obama produced Netflix show, show Bodkin. Uh, how how involved are you in that? And did the Obamas appear on set at any point? It was shot in West Cork, wasn't
1: it? Uh, we shot it in um, yeah, in like a lot in Ardmore Studios, um, around Wicklow and a bit in West Cork, yeah. Um, I play the lead, a character called Dove, and uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be out on Netflix um early next year.
0: And did you get to meet the Obamas? Did were they hands on when it came to the production?
1: I haven't got to meet them just yet, <laughs> but they were no, they were very um supportive throughout. Um, but unfortunately they didn't make any appearances down in Union
0: Hall. Ah, yeah, but sure, that, that might come, that might come in time. Wait till they see you, they <laughs> they'd be afraid <laughs> to visit you when they see you in, the, in this particular one. Being around <laughs> anywhere near Elvira is a dangerous activity. Uh, six episodes in total um, here, John. Have I heard ticklings already of a potential second season?
3: Oh, well, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, Ray had such a clear idea of what he wanted to do across... These six episodes um, and, and a very, again, clear idea of where he wanted to go in terms of the story, the mm. overriding kind of story of Elvira and where she ends up. So I've only I've heard kind of um, bits and pieces, um, shall we say, of what Ray has planned for season two. But um yeah, it's uh, it's exciting. And, yeah, yeah, known uh, very, really funny, very yeah,
0: funny. Yeah, well, there's also, and again some of the names: Sylvester McHugh, who's the local white boy, who's involved in this kind of illicit relationship with Danielle Galligan's character, Emerson Stafford, which is my favourite name in the whole series <laughs> by Rona Rafferty, who's the crime correspondent, and bit of a love interest there. And Danielle is is an old friend of of uh, Elvira's in there as well. Uh, Siobhan, I I guess your eyes would light up at the possibility of Elvira having more people to bump off in some way or other.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Any time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, lovely to speak with you both and congratulations. Uh, certainly, um, I've, I've seen the first episode. I'll be watching the next five. And that is John Hayes and Siobhan Cullen on Obituary. It begins tomorrow night on RT1, 10.15pm and all six episodes will be available to watch on the RTE player afterwards. A sonic alchemist is how Music Radar Magazine describes electronic composer Hannah Peel. Originally from Craigavon in Northern Ireland, Hannah studied at the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts, where she grabbed the ears of, amongst others, the Institute's founder, Paul McCartney. Hannah has gone on to work with an enormous range of artists, Paul Weller amongst them. She's won an Ivor Novello Award for composition. She has Emmy no- and it was Emmy-nominated for her score for Game of Thrones, and her latest album, Fur Wave, was nominated for the Mercury Music Prize after its release in twenty. 2021. In fact, you will be able to hear that album performed live in full at the National Concert Hall on Sunday the 8th of October and I'm delighted to be joined by Hannah Peel from her home in Bangor County down to talk a little bit more about it. And the person we need to talk about in many ways to even start talking about the album is one Delia Derbyshire, who most people will know, I suppose, because of her association with uh, the Doctor Who um, theme. But her her part in the BBC Radiophonic workshop in the 1960s, y- you just can't understate how important a, a figure she was at that
2: time, Hannah. Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that Doctor Who theme has kind of, crept into everybody's imagination, young and old, hasn't it? And it stayed with everyone. And yeah, she was known mostly now because she wasn't given the credit when she first composed the piece. So A lot of people may not have heard of her name, but they certainly know her work for sure.
0: Yeah, but the the, the, composer, the composer he was actually quite keen that she should be. To be fair to him, is I can't think of his name now, just hand. But he wanted her to be credited. But the BBC, I think, were saying, "Oh no, no, no! She she didn't compose it. She just put it together." <laughs> no. Which what is it? You know, composition yeah. and putting together are the same thing.
2: Yeah, I guess, yeah, and back, I think because she worked under that the Radiophonic Workshop umbrella, they just didn't allow people, you know, it was kind of like an, an anomaly back then anyway, it was like a lab, I mean, you were only certain... Um, allowed to work certain amount of hours because they thought it could be dangerous being around electronic music so much, <laughs> and, which sounds so crazy now. But, you know, it was very different back in the day. So I think she spent a lot of hours out of hours making music in there, staying late at night uh, without... I suppose being under contract in some senses. Yeah, she was just
0: she was experiment and you know we we think electronic now and we think of all the stuff that you can do with computers and synthesizers and all of the rest of it. This was kind of electronic music from first principles that they that uh, uh, Derbyshire Dar- and her colleagues were involved in.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean you're talking they sampled and actually one of the things that Delia is well known for is sampling her light like one of those angle poised lights um, that you find in in art spaces and offices now but she sampled that it recorded it to tape made beats out of it and some of her early stuff you could say sounds like early dance music it's incredible actually but yeah very very basic and and well basic in terms of uh, the amount that's produced, mm. but not basic in the t- in terms of technology. But yes, labouring hours over tape and cutting the tape and splicing it and using that to create sounds that we and I do in particular very easily now with samplers and machines and and our computers.
0: So tell me a little bit about how uh, Delia Darbyshire's work and others, there are others involved here as well, how their, th- those the work of those pioneers ha- made its way into your album Fur Wave.
2: Yeah, so um, there's a library company uh, and a library music company that is somebody that commissions composers and usually you get like some really big names that maybe do it under a different name. That music gets used by production companies for TV, radio, you know, you might find it in the back of a nature program or something like Mm. that. But um, in the 70s, there was an album that Delia and two of her other colleagues from the Radiophonic Workshop did under different pseudonyms uh, called Electrosonic, which was music written for like science laboratories and... Uh, You can almost imagine kind of Soviet labs (laughs) and nuclear experimentations happening. And uh, this library KPM had said to me, look, you can do whatever you want with this record, make it into anything you want, but we want you to make a new electronic record. So I made this album and never thought anything of it about putting it out. Um, just made it through lockdown thought well we'll just put it out actually it's kind of all right (laughs) and and it did really really well Mm. but so what I kind of did was instead of I guess remixing a record I sampled the sounds that are from that original album and made them into new instruments and part of the live show is me playing those original sounds through like my my Mm. instruments like midi keyboards and stuff on stage.
0: Tell me a little bit about the track "Emergence in Nature." I want to listen to a bit of this. Certainly, a dancey, upbeat, and dancey feel to this.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a great one to to play live. That I really enjoy it.
0: And, and wh- <laughs> but, what kind of samples made their way, or how how did this piece come about?
2: Yeah, so um, in that you'll, in, when you're playing it, you'll hear loads of kind of like little. Um, I guess they sound like bubbles and there's just all the kind of odd sounds. They're they're all lifted from that elect- original electronic record. And part of Fur Wave, I guess, was me sort of, I guess, you know, that record was made at a time when a science and things were developing at such a rate, and it was quite prominent in people's minds. Whereas when I was making Fur Wave, it was all, it's and still is, to do with the ecosystem, being more connected to nature. And so a lot of the tracks made their way into kind of patterns, and especially mm. living in County Down and on the Belfast Lock, you know, seeing the sea come in and out every single day, the plains the fairies and being part of that kind of ecosystem um, really influenced the record. And I wanted something that was really fun and upbeat. And that's, you know, how Emergence kind of came about, really.
0: a little bit there of emergence in nature from Hannah peter 's album Fur Wave and Hannah will be coming to the National Concert Hall in Dublin playing the album in, in its entirety live on Sunday October the 8th it is extraordinary uh, Hannah when, when you think that those sounds were created you know back what 60 years ago at, at this point in time with like incredible science and, and mathematics behind them what was the attitude to Delia Derbyshire in particular and some of her other female colleagues at the time, their involvement in making music at all?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. A lot of female artists weren't recognised and and in particular, they weren't really recognised as artists either because it was so new. So you were kind of a scientist or a mathematician and you went into music in that direction. I think particularly with... Um, someone like Delia, she Mm. found her outlet with different uh, dancers and people that actually, she says, even people that were walking down the corridor like directors and they they heard these noises coming out of the room and like, I want that for my TV show. (laughs) And that's how she ended up getting work. Um, But, you know, unfortunately when she died, most of her music was in cornflake boxes in the attic and completely unheard of. So the last ten years has been incredible. There's an archive in Manchester, um, there's Adelia Derbyshire Day. There's a lot of people trying to kind of focus around her work and the influence that she's had and celebrate other composers, particularly female and electronic artists as mm. well. So it's it's very inspiring. For someone like me, I didn't grow up with any kind of female role model. And I think it's it's really wonderful to know that she was she was there, yeah, and was you know so long ago as well.
0: Yeah, I saw a wonderful, wonderful piece of archive on the BBC, um, the BBC website today. I was trying to see if I could find it, get it out separate because there's several pieces in the article. I was I was looking at. But it's of Delia Derbyshire being interviewed by uh, a guy on the BBC Light Programme. Now it's very much nineteen um, fifties BBC. Um, very terribly, <laughs> everything's terribly clipped. And at uh, several occasions, he refers to as "good girl," Delia, oh, no, or Miss Derbyshire. Oh. He wouldn't call her Delia; that'd be way too familiar. So he refers to as being a good girl, and you just kind of think the attitude. it was was quite extraordinary Uh, and she clearly Mm. was such an innovator and hugely intelligent because to to make the type of music she was making involved huge um, uh, uh, having wonderful knowledge in terms of mathematics and science it wasn't just you know I'll press the button and see what comes out she knew exactly what she was at
2: oh yes absolutely I mean I do do not have a brain like hers (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) But, yeah, you had to be at the forefront of of maths in Mm. particular at that time.
0: Mm. Uh, You do have a brain of of your own kind, though, which (laughs) I certainly was noticed by Mr Paul McCartney um, at at Liverpool's Institute for Performing Arts. Tell me a little bit about your own graduation and the music that you composed for that and Sir Paul McCartney's reaction to it.
2: Do you know, it's so funny because, like, I think I told that story to... Somebody wants. And, and, and <laughs> Every
5: time you're going to, to, yeah, yeah,
4: you
2: have
4: to. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I,
2: that, I that'll like, teach wow, you. <laughs> I know. Um Yeah, I'd written the music for the graduation, and and there was a, a few people that weren't very happy with me writing it because I'd written, I'd not written a fanfare. <laughs> and, there were no and trumpets. To, there was no trumpets. I did not want to write that. I wanted to write a kind of Steve Rice minimalist percussion piece so that when people got their awards they heard a marimba kind of going (laughs) (laughs) um, but he did whisper into my ear and said that he absolutely loved the music and it made my day and uh, that memory is still with me very strongly.
0: Yeah, well, indeed, uh, I can imagine why it would be and lots of other great uh, great collaborations along the way as well. So looking forward to hearing and seeing more of you at the, the National Concert Hall on Sunday, the 8th of October. I'm going to finish up uh, um, yes. with um, by playing a little bit of pattern formation. Uh, if you maybe lead us into this, if you would. I was going to call you, D. Yes. if you would lead us into this, Anna.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind. That would be amazing. Um, yeah, look, I'm really... I cannot wait to play Dublin. It's my first headline show, and, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. But I have to say it is on Sunday the 1st.
0: Sunday the 1st. My my, my apologies, Sunday the 1st. If
2: anybody turns up with the 8th, I will not be be there. But, Um, but yeah, pattern formation is just uh, based around a a synthesizer piece that plays in 7-8, and it just moves in 7, which is not what you would expect Mm. from um, I guess, but it wasn't written with any intention like that. It just fell that way and flowed, and the synths just came from it. So yeah. I hope you enjoy. Actually, I did sample some of my own records from it, so there is there. a brass band on there that drops in a few times. So there it's you like go.
0: There is. You, it's not that you're anti. You you're you're not anti brass. You, you. Oh like, no, you like no. it yeah I'm a trombonist. How? <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Listen, Hannah. Lovely to have but, spoken to you with you this evening.
2: Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Cheers.
0: That's Hannah Peel, and Hannah will perform her Mercury nominated album Fur Wave live at the National Concert Hall on Sunday, October the 1st. Yes, October the 1st. Expunge any other date from your uh, mind. The concert takes place at 8 pm. Full details on nch.ie. Let's have a listen to a bit of Pattern Formation. Patterned, a patterned formation there from the album Fur Wave which as I said performed live it will be on Sunday October the 1st in the National Concert Hall nch.ie for full details Andrew Scott is a familiar face these days on our TV screens, whether it's as the hot priest, as he was called in Fleabag, or the dastardly Moriarty in Sherlock. He's proven his range, too, on the London stage, from Shakespearean tragedy to the bittersweet comedy of Noel Coward. Now he takes on Chekhov's Uncle Vanya in a new adaptation with a new title. It's simply called Vanya that seems sees him play every role in the production. Here he's reunited with playwright Simon Stevens and director Sam Yates. It opened last week in London's West End. Emer McBride went to see it for us and she joins me now on the, the line. Chekhov plays um, are, are, normally have a big cast of characters and a big cast of actors within them and, and tell rambling family tales. Before we get into what's been done with it, just remind us of this story at the heart of the original Chekhov play, if you would, Emer.
4: Yeah, so the, the story is about uh, an elderly academic who has a very young, beautiful wife who returns to his country estate that had previously been owned by his first wife and is run by... Uh, her brother, uh, who is Vanya, and um, and his, and the academic's daughter with his first wife, Sonia. And uh, they return uh, to, to life in the countryside. They don't find it very congenial. He has lots of illnesses. So they keep summoning the doctor, Astrof, who lives very far away, to come and uh, take care of him and then is very obstreperous and won't allow himself to be taken care of. Astroff... Uh, meanwhile is you know very uh, idealistic man spends his time preoccupied with environmental concerns and uh taking care of, of the, the the local peasants mm. and planting trees in the forests and uh, he finds himself very sort of disillusioned and lost in this new environment and bowls for the academic's beautiful wife Yelena, and and takes to drink in the in the meantime Vanya is uh realizing he's kind of having a midlife crisis and has realized that he's wasted his life taking care of this estate and mm. making it produce income for this this academic who he thinks is he's come to be completely disillusioned by finds him a, a, a worthless man who and he's wasted his life and Sonia's life kind of giving this man yeah. Uh, income
0: yeah and, and,
4: and- uh, so it all sort of comes to to a head Um and there's a big confrontation when when the academic says he's going to sell the, uh, the sell the estate and live off the income.
0: Yeah. So essentially, we've we've an uncle and niece I mean, in real trouble here because daddy and brother-in-law has a young wife, and now he wants the money. And we have this doctor character in the midst of it all, and they're all falling in love with the young wife as as she appears yeah. in, in in the piece. And there's an unrequited love story as well. I mean, as I say, lo- big plots. Big, lots of really important characters, um, like very singular and and differentiated characters uh, in the original Chekhov play. What then has been done in in this adaptation by Simon Stevens? How has he gone about adapting that in such a way that all of the characters can be played by one actor?
4: Well, I have to say, I was I was pretty sceptical when I heard the when I read the pitch. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God! I mean, all plays as well, all the characters are so singular in yeah. particular, um, and and yet somehow he has managed to do this adaptation. I thought that it would be uh, kind of radically altered, but actually it stays very very close. I mean, it's it's modernised and it's set in Ireland. Um, but other than that, it it kind of follows the the track mm. of the original prey pretty closely. He's cut it down some of it, um, but actually, um, it's it's very faithful, alarmingly faithful. Uh, when you see uh, Andrew Scott tackling them all one by one, um, it's quite a feat.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of am, I'm astounded at how at how that happens. Did you get any closer to answering a question as to why Simon Stevens had had decided to present the play in this way?
4: Well, I think the idea is that because Chekhov uh, famously put so much of himself into each of his characters that it might be quite interesting to kind of reassemble them all inside one performer's body. Um I mean it's 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 a it's a tenuous um idea at best I think there's hardly a writer alive who doesn't put yeah a yeah. bit of themselves into all of their characters so that's it's it's not something that's particularly a revolutionary idea and not so anything that was specific to Chekhov um but I think it was also perhaps just a bit of a challenge and you know I'm a, I'm a big fan of experimentation <laughs> so uh why not uh yeah. you know Chekhov can withstand the efforts I think
0: and now we know that uh, for, for if there's one thing certain is that Andrew Scott can act, uh, and he can he's quite versatile in the characters that he has presented to us. How does he manage with the task of giving us all of these characters, male and female?
4: Well, I, there's I mean there's a lot of technical skill in it. First of all, they've obviously you know worked out a, a device whereby you, you can follow mostly who's speaking. And so each character is kind of given a a character prop. So, you know, Sonia has a has a, a red dishcloth and Elena has a necklace that she plays with and um Astrof has a tennis ball that he 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 bounces. And and so in that way it it's it it becomes quite clear, quite quite quickly who who is speaking mm. at the time. And there's there are a couple of moments where, you know, there's a scene being going on between maybe three characters and suddenly a fourth character pipes up from nowhere and there's a bit of fun had with that where he'll suddenly go, oh, you were there all the time. <laughs> um and so, you know, there's a, a nod to the difficulty of it. And um but yeah, by and large, that element of it was was pretty clear mm. and you know, I, I, like there's not many actors could pull that off. And uh, Andrew Scott is obviously incredibly charismatic. And uh, and it's a real, you know, bravura performance. And I, I, I hate to think what state he must be in yeah. when the curtain comes down every Absolutely. night. He must be yeah, completely the, shattered. You,
0: you did say that Simon Stevens has shortened it somewhat, but it is a four act play. It's a long play. Is it shortened quite a lot
4: in the performance? well I think I mean it 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 goes right through and I think it was about an hour and a half an hour Mm. and three quarters all the way through with no interval Uh, so that is obviously much shortened down from the full length play but it didn't really feel like that and you know I had it had been a while since I'd read Vanya and I I had a read of it before I went in that day and you know, apart from certain speeches being shortened, I didn't really notice yeah. big chunks that had 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 disappeared from it. It certainly pulls the thread of the original all the way through.
0: Yeah, but you you didn't you didn't need to have read it, and you don't need to know Vanya particularly to go the original to go and see this production.
4: No, absolutely, you don't. I mean, I think if if you do, it adds something to it. But I yeah. think if you don't and you leave, you will certainly. Know a lot more about it than uh, you did before you walked in the door, and it's uh, it's it's completely enjoyable. It's not playing off yeah. the. The original text at all it is you know it's it, it works all on its own as it's, its own thing
0: what about the the characters though because we did say that in, I think we both used the term singular in terms of the, and, and very particular each of these characters are so specific in in where they're at in their lives and in their emotion the emotional temperature uh, at which they live their their lives did any of the characters suffer? do you think, uh, outside of the technical skill of Andrew Scott and shifting from one to the other, what about the actual characters themselves?
4: Well, you know, I mean, I think he he's at his best when he's playing Astroff and he's playing Vanya, um, where he really taps into that kind of, that awful sort of Jacobian ennui and sense mm. of wasted life. And parts that um, he would be perfect to be
0: cast in in a, in a traditional production, he would be perfect for either well, of those parts. Uh,
4: yeah. Absolutely, he would, and and you would be very happy to watch him in either of them. And he really captures the kind of the sadness, the real intense sadness of it. I think where it falls down is the is the the female characters. Um, I think it's it's obviously it's an all male creative team, and I did feel that perhaps there was no one there to speak up for them. And and also the problem with the modernised text is when you deal with problems that female characters have that they no longer have in the West like being completely reliant on families, not mm-hmm. being able to go anywhere or do anything. you know you need to address that in the modernization how, how can you modernize that? And it isn't. it's just kind of left unsaid like maybe maybe don't notice if we don't say anything about it mm. but it means it's very hard to connect with the characters because why are they so? Stuck. Why are they so lost? Why do they seem to have so little volition of their own in their lives? And I felt that uh, the, the portrayal of the character of the of the women was a bit silly, and it was a little bit like man doing girl voices mm. sometimes. I mean, and 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 the real problem is, I think, with the original play, the balance of tragedy hangs between Vanya and Sonia. Yeah. That you know, Vanya makes choices that means he has wasted his life, but Sonia's life is wasted and she's never had any choices. Oh, yeah. She's, And she's the one who ends up having to be the most stoic at the end. And I think because she's not allowed to breathe in the production, that you don't feel for her, that you kind of, yeah. because she's in love with Astroff and he doesn't love her back, it's treated a little bit like the squealy girl yeah, right. uh, rather than someone who's who's desperate and who not only loves this person but also would love to have a life of her own now, given, and, and given, that gets lost
0: yeah given that caveat which is clear that the, the the Sonya character gets lost in, and it is an equal the tragedy is equal hers and vanyas i always think in the play itself would you mm. would you recommend this is is there enough in the bravura performance of of andrew scott to send people to it
4: Yeah, I absolutely, I mean, the thing is, I have, I have complaints about it, but at the same time, I was incredibly impressed and I enjoyed it. And he is absolutely mesmerising. And it's, it's, you know, and also he pulls an awful lot of humour out of the text, which you don't often get in Chekhov. And, and that's really beautifully done. And it really helps to carry the audience along because, you know, looking at one person on their own on stage for that amount of time is hard, you know, it's hard to keep people's concentration and he really does. does. There's not a moment where you're bored.
0: All right, and I suppose uh, Cechovalo said he wrote comedy, so he's, he's certainly tapped into that. As, uh, as, well, he's uh, taking him at his word. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Emer, thanks very much for that. That's Emer McBride. Vanya is at the Duke of York's Theatre in London until the 21st of October. Now, performance artist Marina Abramovic has taken over the Royal Academy in London for a retrospective of her work. She, believe it or not, is the first woman to have a retrospective at the Royal Academy since its foundation in 1768. Some of her key performance works are recreated at the gallery by a group of performance artists who trained at the Marina Abramovich Institute. All is provocative. The visitors are invited to enter through a narrow doorway where a naked man and woman face each other, forcing the visitor to squeeze between them, choosing which way to face This is a recreation of Marina and her then-husband Ule's 1977 installation Imponderabilia, just one of the many works on show at this exhibition. Uh, Cultural critic and writer Sinead Gleeson ponders the Imponderabilia of Marina uh, Abramovich. I suppose, Sinead, Irish visitors to Rosk in 1980, Emma in in 1996 and 2001 would be familiar with Marina Abramovich's work. This is a very comprehensive uh, affair, really, Five decades of the Serbian artist's work brought together.
5: Absolutely, and it, and it's 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 a really huge and substantial um, exhibition. It's the first time in the main galleries. I mean, they've had Valeria Barlow and Tracy Emin in those words, but else for the main galleries, first woman in two hundred and fifty five years, which is a very sobering fact. Mm. Um, the exhibition was meant to happen about three years ago, and then obviously COVID happened. And um, interestingly, Ma- Marina had a massive health scare earlier this year, and she said that she refl- it it helped her reflect. She was thinking a lot on you know mortality and the body, which are her, her key tools and themes. Um, so that kind of affected the exhibition as well. And she said that um, that she's actually glad that it's happening now and not three years ago, because it kind of made her see what clearly, how she wanted, mm. you know, what her legacy would be, what she wanted people to who walk into the Royal Academy to look at and see as representative of her work. So there's a, there's a lot of, of pieces, a lot of work here to see.
0: Yeah. And uh, how is it arranged? Is it arranged thematically? Is it arranged arranged chronologically?
5: Yeah, thematically, which I th- think really worked really well because then, you know, a lot of Ma- Ma- Marina's very famous work is from the 70s and 80s. So, it, you know, if you did it chronologically, it would be very front-loaded. Mm-hmm. But, you, but you you kind of, you walk in and you see what is arguably one of her most famous pieces. I think the piece, thanks to the internet, that a lot of people know, which is The Artist is Present, where she sat for 700, uh, and she sat 716 hours over three months in MoMA in New York, where she would sit in a chair. An audience member could sit forward across from her. There would be no speaking or touching but you could have this kind of moment and you know Patty Smith Lou Reed Bjork all these people came to see her but it was incredibly blackbreaking and incredibly intense and that's if Marina if people don't know who Marina Abramovich is this is what she does mm. she is a performance artist she uses her body she uses her physicality her corporeality this is what she does so it's it's not, It's not. definitely not the kind of thing that anybody could do but but she can do it
0: Yeah but you, you, you touch uh, my big question around this whole retrospective aspect of this oh. exhibition the artist is present um, was yeah. it so 700 Hours, you said that the origin was the original piece of performance of the artist is present. She can't be present in all of these pieces uh, because, you know, it was she who made the pieces and who performed the pieces to start out with. It was she and Uli who were uh, the two naked figures in in Imponderabilia. It was she who was the artist in The Artist is Present. Do you feel in any way cheated that it's that it's not her that is present for all of them?
5: I, I don't, because I think, I mean, it, there's been a history in performance art of other performers uh, performing, their, having people perform their work. Marina did it her, herself with Five Easy Pieces, where she performed the work of five famous performance artists. Mm. It also, it, it, it's a real contradiction in a way, Sean, because you're talking about work that, you know, you see it once in a room and there's, there's an impermanence to it. And it's meant to be something that is very ephemeral. And yet, through the act of re-performance, it becomes much more... Permanent. You can it can be done forever more. Mm. Also, I think Marina. There was possibly plans for her to be more involved in the show, but be, she had um, basically a heart attack and had a clotting issue. And I think she's really minding her 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 health and looking after herself. But for me, it didn't affect that. And I mean, I walking. It's, it's um, Imponderabilia is such a famous piece as you mentioned. So you're walking through the door. You're trying to clutch your coat and your bag as I was. So you're not, you know, touching anything or hurting anybody mm. as you go through. And it's incredibly intense. I mean, the, all those pieces. Um, although they were her and Ule's story their are pieces about I think they actually resonate even more now because it's about bodies and consent and intimacy and the versions of ourselves that we show to each other what we're comfortable revealing about ourselves Um, and I, I felt that those themes still felt even more resonant yeah. than they did in the 1970s you know
0: and in another work um, from, 19, from the 70s uh, Rhythm Zero or Rhythm Zero from 1974 this was yeah. a, a very provocative work at the time and in fact downright violent uh, some people said and were very uncomfortable with the invitation in some ways to violence that the yep. work presented. Explain what's what was involved there and how is that shown yep. here?
5: Again, a durational piece of six hours and originally performed in a gallery in Naples. So Marina arranged 72 objects on a table and you can see this table in, in the gallery in the Royal Academy. Um, everything from olive oil and honey and flowers to lovely things to, to chains and knives and a loaded gun. So when she performed it in 74, she said to the audience who came in, I absolve you of anything you want to do do whatever you want me with any of these objects. So people, you know, somebody would kiss her, somebody would, would give her a flower. But then this kind of feral, so the social contract broke mm. down and this kind of feralness came out. So somebody did cut her neck and suck her blood. Somebody made her hold a loaded gun to her head. Um, and then at the end, you know, she just walked out. Of there Somebody cut her clothes off. Like there's very famous images of it. So very powerful, very provocative. Again, to be making work like that, like people like Carolee Schneeman would have been doing this as well. Very difficult to make work like that at yeah. a time in the 1970s. Very difficult to do that kind of work in Ireland as well. But as you mentioned, the the, the famous piece with Ullé with the bow and arrow was performed at Rosk in Dublin in, in, in the 80s. So pr- provocative always, groundbreaking always, and, and making work that would have been not for everybody for sure.
0: And uh, 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 the work that I know was shown in video form when, when the Emma, in the Emma exhibitions is Rhythm Ten from nineteen seventy three. And um, do we get that in video form here, or, or are there works that are simply represented either in video or pictorial form?
5: Ye- Yes, Rhythm Tennis, the one where it's kind of like a, a loop of her stabbing herself, the kind of game, the knife game where you run the knife between your fingers. And she, what she does is she does it over and over to try and remember the pattern of what the sounds were like. I mean, it's it's very, a lot of the work is very, she, there's, there's things where she would perform and she would lose consciousness. She would dance until she dropped of exhaustion. Um, you know, her and Ulay breathing into each other's mouths to kind of get that unconscious. There's a, there's very much a kind of pushing yourself right up to the edge of, of seeing how far you can you can push the body to its extremes. Um, and that, that work is there. So there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's also a lot of later work people will see that's like stones and sculptures. But I think it's it's very much this early um, photography work. And again, I think the idea that some of it that it's been recorded is really important because again performance art sometimes people want it to be just seen once or performed once um, and again the re I mean we're going to have one of her very famous pieces The House with the Ocean View is being performed um, three times it's a 12 day piece Amanda Coogan the Irish Hi. performance artist is going to do it where she, she doesn't get to go home from the gallery you live there for 12 nights you're not allowed to eat you're not allowed to speak and you're only allowed to have water so Amanda I'm sure is in training for that but Amanda had trained with Abramovich already and knows the Abramovich Method, so yeah. she's she she knows what she's doing. But it's it's, it's she's a fascinating artist. She's an extremely well known artist, and I don't think she's ever really deviated from 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 the path of being kind of um, you know controversial or trying to make work that yeah. maybe isn't for everybody. Um, and you know she's in her late seventies now, but still going very strong from based on this exhibition.
0: And of course, Ule has died since um, the, 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 that great moment in the artist is present when he appeared yeah. as one of the viewers and they sat opposite each other. And everybody, I think there was a big reference at the time to the to the emotion there. But they, their yeah. breakup, they, they know how to do breakups, it has to be said. One of them Thank started you. at one end of the Great Wall of China, the other one at the other, they walked, they met briefly somewhere along the way and then went their separate ways. How are they representing that? Or is that piece mentioned within this exhibition?
5: Yes, it is. And there's there's footage and there, uh, there's photography. Uh, and again, you I mean they were, they were meant to get married when they met in the middle, but in the, in the meantime, Ulay had managed to get the Chinese translator pregnant. Um, so that didn't <laughs> work out so well in the end. But it's very, I mean, theirs is a great love story. That's one of the big themes of the exhibition is this great love they had. Mm. They were born on, this, they, have, they share the same birthday and they made all this incredible work together that, that I think is some of the most famous of her work is her collaborations with him. And, there's a real, there's a tribute to him on the wall by Marina as well, which is I, th- I found was was quite touching because he's very much there. in yeah, spirit I think in the
0: work. yeah. Um, yes, it does sound as if uh, as if it, there would be a a large emotional quality to that. Um, worth seeing and and seeing, I suppose, the body uh, her body of work all in the one place like this must be a a good experience, is it or was it for you, Sinead?
5: I, it really is. It's, it's very overwhelming. It's very much an exhibition of the senses. It's very sensory. And again, uh, uh, you know, Obama, Obama, Abramovich is, is amazing at kind of um, getting across her pain too, but it's pain that kind mm. of has autonomy. It's pain created and directed by her. So she suffers for her art, but she's suffering for the viewer as well. So yeah. it's really fascinating. She's an artist unlike many other people and maybe it won't be for everybody, but I, I think she's really unique and an original oh, um, right. maker.
0: That's great. Thanks for that, Sinead. That's Sinead Gleeson. Marina Abramovich is at the Royal Academy in London until January 1st. Royalacademy.org.uk for full details. That's our lot for this evening. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Patrick Carney was on sound. Tonight's programme produced by Olin McGowan. John Creedon is back in the seat in Cork and he will be with you after the news.